Perhaps the most unexpected success story in the political history of the late 20th century was the relatively peaceful transition from the apartheid system in South Africa to the creation of a one-man, one-vote, multiracial democracy. Right up till the moment it happened, most observers, and indeed most protagonists, anticipated a long-drawn-out and bloody struggle. Why were they proved wrong, and why were the predictions of doom confounded? Much has been written about the contribution of Nelson Mandela and his unique blend of forgiveness, charisma, and political tenacity. But what about the other side of the veil? What led the National Party government that had constructed the apartheid state in 1948 and presided over it for nearly 50 uninterrupted years of power to decide unilaterally to dismantle it, release all political prisoners, including Mandela, and negotiate the surrender of white political power? There's no one better placed to answer these questions than F.W. de Klerk. It was his decision in February 1990, shortly after he succeeded the ailing hardline P.W. Botha as state president, which led to the unconditional release of Nelson Mandela and the unbanning of the ANC and the South African Communist Party. In due course, both Mandela and de Klerk were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for their roles in the peaceful process of transferring power from the white minority government to the first government elected on a universal multiracial franchise. What made him take this momentous decision? Was it a change of heart, or the pragmatic recognition of political reality, or a mixture of the two? Little is known outside South Africa about his political past leading up to the historic events which began with his announcement in February 1990. For the previous 12 years, he had served in both as cabinet, as a minister, implementing the policy of apartheid in a series of portfolios. And although in 1986 he was involved in the partial removal of many of the so-called petty apartheid laws, his reputation within South Africa was that of the leader of the so-called Verkrampter, or hardline wing, of the National Party. I'm fortunate to be joined by Mr de Klerk. Mr de Klerk, in your introduction to Nelson Mandela's famous speech uh, at his trial, which was recently republished by The Guardian, uh, you said that after much internal debate, we realised that apartheid could not be reformed because it was morally wrong. It had to be dismantled entirely and replaced with a non-racial democracy. What was it that led you to the conclusion that apartheid was morally wrong? What I supported when I was a young man was that the solution to bring justice to all in South Africa was to build a little Europe there, was to create so many nation-states as there are actual nations, each with their own cultures, each with their own languages, that is what separate development tried and wanted to achieve. We failed to achieve that. Four of the more or less nine distinguishable black nations did accept independence and full self-government. The international community, because it was spawned by apartheid, refused to recognize their independence. The result was, it was a fiction. Secondly, we failed because the whites wanted to retain too much land. They didn't make it attractive enough to really give to all the indigenous black nations of South Africa really viable countries. Thirdly, it failed because of continuing economic integration, notwithstanding vast investments in the so-called homelands, 
nonetheless, people kept streaming to the cities, to the honeypots of great economic growth during the 60s and 70s. And they, it failed because the majority of blacks rejected that as a way in which to get full political rights. Once one had to admit that we have failed through that route to bring justice, for me it became morally unjustifiable to continue to pursue something which clearly has failed. And the principle for me involved was I cannot also build the future and the security and justice for my people, and I'm an Afrikaner, on the basis of injustice to a majority of the people living in the same country and sharing in the same economy. And therefore, in my mind, I didn't have a Damascus Road experience where one evening I went to bed and still believed in, in uh, uh, separate development and the next morning I said it's all wrong and morally unjustifiable. It was a process. But when I got clarity in my mind that this policy is not only doomed to failure, it actually has failed, I decided we have to abandon that concept and define a new vision. And we did so within the National Party. We did it already in 86. I served on a, on a, on a high-powered cabinet committee under the chairmanship now of the late, he's now, he's died recently, Mr. Chris Yenis. And our task was to say, where must we go constitutionally? And we came up with a report to say we must adopt a new vision of one united South Africa with one person, one vote, with all forms of racial discrimination to be cleared from the statute book, but with the effective protection of our cultural diversity and of minorities, with proper checks and balances which can prevent the misuse of power, with constitutional safeguards which can assure that we would not go the way that so many other countries have gone in the rest of Africa. And that was accepted by a federal congress of the National Party in August 1986. Well, you, you say it wasn't a, a sudden road to Damascus, but it's right, isn't it? You were a minister under um, President Botha from 1978 to 1989, and throughout that period, in your various portfolios, you fairly actively uh, implemented policies of apartheid. I also fairly actively uh, brought in the departments I had, uh, uh, promoted and implemented vast reforms. Let me give you one example. When I was Minister of Home Affairs, I scrapped the law which said, which prevented mixed marriages. My father has put that law on the statute book. Well, I was going to ask what your father would have said. Uh, your father, uh, uh, when you abolished apartheid, your father uh, was a cabinet minister for 15 years. Uh, and Under Stradon, Verwoot and Foster. Uh, and he was um, root and branch proponent uh, of apartheid. Yes, that's true. 
and I'm convinced that my father would have adapted had he lived to the time when apartheid was fully abolished. Already, in my very first years in cabinet, I became a cabinet minister in 1978, my father was supportive of the trend towards fundamental reform which has already started. It is to be remembered that the late President Boerta, then as Prime Minister, in his almost very first speech after he became Prime Minister, said we must adapt or die. And from the time, not because of me, but from the time I entered Cabinet, the emphasis was on reforms. But reforms which would, did not abolish separate development, but reforms which were aimed at changing the, the very, very dehumanizing aspects, giving greater freedom of movement, giving private property ownership within so-called white South Africa also to blacks, uh, abolishing the concept of job reservation on the basis of race and color, allowing uh, free organization for trade unions, also black trade unions. All this started in 77, 78, 79. And by the time when I became president, already most of the apartheid laws, which infringed on the dignity of people, if I can define it that way, have been repealed. Well, but that was very, very late on, wasn't it? You said in your um, uh, evidence to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that by the end of 1986, a lot of those what has been called petty apartheid laws had been dismantled. But if you break it down a bit in a bit more detail and you look at uh, some of the things that you were defending as a minister f during the 1980s, uh, you were fairly actively justifying um, apartheid laws. I wonder if we could just take a few examples. Um, when you were uh, minister uh, of sport, uh, you defended a ban on Indians dancing with whites in public. Uh, that I can't recall, but, but let me just use sport. There was... Until I became Minister of Sport, very direct government involvement in sport. During my Ministership of Sport and Recreation, the policy was changed to say sporting organizations have full freedom and full autonomy with regard to all the decisions. I withdrew the government and I ended, as Minister of Sport, government intervention in sport. But you, let's, if I take another example, as in 1979 as Minister of Posts, you defended the continued policy of separate counters for blacks and whites in post offices. A newspaper uh, put oh. a black man up to buying some stamps uh, at a white counter. He was refused. And when there was a, a, a row in Parliament, you defended that and attacked the newspaper for oh, causing no, mischief. I'm sorry, I can't remember that at all. I think by the time I became Minister of Posts and Telecommunications, they weren't separate counters any longer. Well, I'm just I taking that from a press cutting at the time. Can I give you another example? In 1978, as Minister of Social Welfare and Pensions, uh, you defended your welfare bill from opposition attacks in Parliament on the basis that its apartheid provisions uh, provided for racial separation in the structure of welfare services. And you said, I had no problem with apartheid. 
I don't want to hide the fact that we're heading for a division of powers. We believe the division of powers is a sound principle. That's absolutely true, because we believe in a division of powers right up to 1989, really. I was also, in my last years before I became president, chairman of the White Ministers' Council. And what has developed as a result of reforms, and it was already in embryo there when I was Minister of Social Affairs and Pensions, was that there's a concept of own affairs, that there's a concept that certain matters, cultural issues, education, and management of social affairs can be federalized in a certain sense, not on a geographical basis, but on an ethnic basis, on a cultural basis. And I was a strong advocate for that as part of the solution and the constitutional challenges which we faced during the years until I became president. But if, that, if you came to the conclusion that that and was immoral... Actually, can I just say, but it actually worked. When we changed the constitution at the beginning of 1980 to a three-chamber parliament, and there was one chamber for the coloreds, the people of mixed origin, and there was a chamber for the Indians in South Africa, and there was a white chamber, the Indians and the coloreds ran their own education, ran their own social, and they wanted to, and they did so very successfully. The Indian education department became a model education department. We then invited with that constitutional change. We invited what was referred to as the urban blacks, the blacks who didn't live in the areas where already they had a form of democracy and elected and had a form of self-government, to have an election and to elect people who could negotiate with regard to their political rights. It was rejected under influence of the ANC as it was then thinking because uh, they did not want at that stage to negotiate with the apartheid government. I'm not criticizing that. I'm just stating it as a fact. But, but you were uh, strongly opposed uh, to integration in the 1980s. I was opposed to full political integration and saw in that phase the constitutional solution to be to have something but not on a geographical basis, something like a European Union model, where there would be a central government dealing with matters of common concern affecting everybody, but with a division of functions and powers with regard to matters which are more culturally orientated and linked to a specific culture group. Well, if you take as an example, you, for five years before you became president, you were Minister of Education, uh, and when you were Minister of Education, uh, you rejected mixed-race state schools. Yes, that's true. But not Isn't that apartheid? But, but can I say, not on the basis of race. Race is not the only differential in South Africa, in the new South Africa, where all schools are open. Mother tongue education is a very big issue. One of the main reasons, and, and it's not now me saying that, it's also admitted by the present new ANC Minister of Education. One of the main reasons why the dropout figure of black students and the lower pass rate of black students in the present education system, and it was like that before, 
was that we didn't have mother tongue education. I was an advocate for mother tongue education, for getting each child, and we must remember there are nine indigenous black languages, getting each child to at least until high school, to preferably be educated and taught mathematics and science in the language which that child best understand, and not in a language which is a second language, not properly mastered, and where quite often the teacher doesn't even speak it properly. But if you go back to the origin of uh, separate schools and apartheid in education, uh, Dr. Favert, who was the architect of uh, apartheid, the edu apartheid education system, uh, famously said, the school must equip the Bantu to meet the demands which the economic life will impose on him. What's the use of teaching a Bantu child mathematics when it can't use it in practice? No, I totally reject that. I never agreed with that. I never supported that as a specific issue. I totally disagree with it. And if I was asked that question in 1948 when I was at school, I would have also disagreed with it. Uh, but even if you disagree with that as a policy and as an intention, isn't that, wasn't that the effect right the way through the five years where you were Minister of Education of maintaining separate segregated schools? The intention when I was a Minister of National Education was to have different education departments catering for different linguistic language groups and ethnic groups in South Africa. I mean, you, I think, once said uh, it's important that the, the races should mix, but not in the classroom. If you don't mix in the classroom, if you have segregation in the classroom, isn't that part of the immorality that you now describe and for that which I you apologise to? That, that I now admit to. Yes, I'm not running away from my past. Yes, I did implement separate development. I did implement especially what I would, what was called not grand apartheid, but the more serious part, not petty apartheid. Because I believed up to a certain point, and it was a process to change that belief, I believed up to a certain point that we need to build a little Europe. If you go to France and you send your ch child to a school in France, the, the language medium is French, but you are both Europeans. But the reality, right the way through the 1980s when you were a minister, was that uh, all the major conurbations in South Africa had millions of blacks living in them, and they weren't separate countries. They weren't living in separate countries. They were li living in the same towns as the whites. Now that's true, and that is the reason for why the other vision did, did not materialize. It's one of the reasons, which I at the beginning said, one of the reasons for the failure of so-called Grand Apartheid was growing economic and physical integration, living and being born in the same town, dying in the same town, working next to each other at the same bench in the factory. Well, I think what I'm getting at is whether your last answer doesn't really suggest that the reason for the great change uh, in dismantling apartheid and releasing Nelson Mandela and all the rest of it was not a moral conversion, but just a, a recognition that it, de facto it was no longer viable. I reject that. I'm not saying that the realities did not have an influence on thinking. Of course it had. As sanctions had an influence on our thinking. As certain pragmatic considerations had an influence. But I was part of the many what we call Bush conferences, which P.W. Boerta started, where we, as 
white ministers in a national party controlled country where the whites had most of the power in their hands, sat down and faced each other and said, where must we go? Where we admitted to each other and said to each other, this cannot go on, it's morally unjustifiable. I can testify as to what in my heart and my mind motivated me. And central to how I developed, if I can put it that way, was the concept that we must work towards a situation where there will be justice for all. As the realization in me and my mind grew that we are not succeeding to bring justice, that we are now making permanent what was originally thought would be a temporary phase of infringing freedom of movement of people, etc., etc., so that the, the grand vision of building a little Europe there could be obtained. When I, as I grew in my conviction, this is not going to happen, it cannot happen, I came to the conclusion that apartheid has brought us to a point which was morally unjustifiable. I wonder if we could just uh, go identify some of the pressures uh, on the National Party government uh, which contributed to your decision uh, and ask you what importance they had. Archbishop Tutu, when uh, I spoke to him uh, in, uh, for one of these interviews, uh, said that um, at the time when he came to see you, uh, he, you gave him the impression that for all uh, that the national government was saying at the time, that actually sanctions were more of a problem uh, than uh, the government was letting on. I think it went through phases. Sanctions also led us to build seven atom bombs. Sanctions led us to spend billions on becoming more independent and less dependent from international trade. We started making artificial rubber when we could no longer import rubber. We developed the uh, Sassel process oil from coal. We potted up oil to a point that when I became Minister of Mineral and Energy Affairs, I was briefed that we had enough oil in old mines, etc., plus the Sassel process to withstand a successful total embargo of oil for four years. So sanctions twisted our economy. It did a lot of damage in that sense as well. In the later phases, when economic, when financial sanctions was being considered, when there was a real threat of South African Airways planes being impounded, then that threat was a threat which couldn't be circumvented in the same way that we have successfully over many decades uh, circumvented sanctions. So in that sense of the word, yes, in the later stages, I think sanctions had a greater influence on thinking within the National Party than in its earlier stages. One of the biggest victories ever won by the National Party was in 1977 under John Foster, when his real platform was <coughs> Who are the Americans to tell us what to do? And that was when America started with its strict sanctions. So it was at times really counterproductive and delayed reform. 
What about uh, the collapse of communism and the loss for the National Party of the card uh, that you were the last bullock against communism, uh, which uh, prevented America and the United Kingdom and other countries of the West uh, from putting more pressure than they otherwise might have done? The coming down of the Berlin Wall was extremely important, but not in the negative sense, as your question indicates, in a positive sense. While the ANC was linked, as it remains linked today, to the South African Communist Party, and through that to a, a USSR, which had an expansionist policy in Southern Africa, which assisted and helped hundreds of thousands of Cuban troops to be in Southern Africa, who wanted control, direct or indirect, of the whole of Southern Africa. Communism was a real threat and was an inhibiting factor with regard to negotiation with the ANC, which clearly, in my mind, represented the majority of all black South Africans. When the Berlin Wall came down, it opened the opportunity for me as president to make the speech which I made on the 2nd of February 1990. I could unban the SA Communist Party suddenly the ANC became not also an instrument in the hands of an expansionist world power, but just became an organization of South Africans who want full political rights. And by then, as I've explained earlier, the conference of 86, already we have decided should have full political rights in one united South Africa. And the fall of communism enabled me and helped me greatly to take much more far-reaching initiatives than I would have been able if communism didn't fall. When you made your famous speech uh, in February 1990 and then you dismantled apartheid, you released Nelson Mandela, you unbanned the ANC and the South African Communist Party. Did you have any idea that within four years Nelson Mandela would be president of South Africa? Yes. Yes, I, I didn't for a moment think that we could win an election. By then, the party has become, Mike party has become a multiracial party. I didn't for a moment think that we would win the election. My target was for us to get one-third of the vote. I failed in that, and I can exp expand a bit on that. It's an interesting story. But to get one-third of the vote, but I expected the ANC to be the majority party. But in your... Negotiations in the period between 1990 and 94, uh, to begin with, you sold your policy to the white electorate on the basis that there would not be unrestricted universal franchise, one man, one vote, majority rule, but that there would be, in effect, a white veto, entrenched group powers. And in the end, you failed in that negotiation beyond the first parliament. Well, firstly, once again, you make some assumptions in the question with which I fundamentally disagree. I never advocated a white veto. What I did say, that inter alia, apart from other checks and balances, I would try to negotiate and promise to negotiate a system where there will be sharing of power also in the executive. That I did advocate. And in that, I failed to, to get that into the final constitution of 1996. It was adopted 
in the transitional constitution of 1994. And there was a government of national unity, which in terms of that constitution could continue until 1999 for five years. But in that negotiation, there was deadlock, wasn't there? And it was the Joe Slovo, who was the head of the Communist Party, who broke the deadlock by saying, suggesting that you could have that entrenched executive, in effect, veto, but only for the first parliament. Yeah. But once again, it wasn't a veto, please. We have the British system, and it continues to this day in the ANC. You don't vote in the cabinet. The president sits there as chairman of the cabinet. Everybody have a chance to put their views and then say this will be the policy. We had the right in that government of national unity to say, but okay, we didn't get what we want. We disagree and we have the right publicly, therefore, to say with this government decision, we disassociate ourselves from it. But we did not have a veto if we didn't say yes, government couldn't move forward. No, it well, wasn't the situation <clears throat> at all. Not now, let me, let me say, it was Joe Slovo, but that was not satisfactory to us. We accepted it in order to get the election, in order to, to get the new dispensation going. But we reached an agreement that the new parliament elected in 1994 would also, together with its Senate, be a constitution-writing assembly and that a final constitution would be negotiated during that first period of five years, which would have to, in terms of the transitional constitution, which ha would have to comply with a number of around about 34 immutable principles certified by a constitutional court. So we continue to negotiate for a form, not such a rigid form, but a form of power sharing at executive level. And the last proposal that we made was that there should be, in future, from 99 onwards, if a government gets more than 50% of the vote, it forms the government. If a party gets more than 50% of the vote, it forms the government. doesn't have to have other parties, second biggest and third biggest party in it. But that next, that was our proposal, next to that cabinet, there should be a consultative council on which parties with more than 5% of the vote would have a right to be represented together with the majority party. And that there should be an onus on the cabinet to refer matters of national importance to that consultative council in an effort to get consensus. And we furthermore said, and if in such a consultative council, consensus cannot be achieved, then the government will prevail and will implement its own policies. That very mild proposal was rejected. Twice I said to uh, President Mandela, I was then executive deputy president together with Tabu Mbeki, if you don't accept this mild proposal, I'll have to withdraw from the government of national unity. And three times I was assured by Mr. Ruf Mayer, our chief negotiator, he also made this clear to Cyril Ramaphosa, the ANC's main negotiator. Nonetheless, they said no. They thought, I think, we were too attached to our jobs and our nice black cars and the status of being ministers and whatever. And that was the main reason why I withdrew from the government of national unity. Why did I fail? 
because the two other important minority parties dropped me on this issue. Together we had 33 and a third. But Inkata Freedom Party and the then Democratic Party uh, did not support us on this issue and, and, and traded for other concessions from the ANC, refused to support us. And yes, I admit that that is one of the goals which I had, which I failed to achieve. I was really thinking not of the period after you uh, were a member of, uh, became a member of the National Unity Government. I was thinking of the period before then, the negotiations between 90 and 94, between you uh, as the, ANC, uh, the NP National Party Government and Mandela. Uh, it was at that stage where what you ultimately got uh, in the first uh, parliament, but not after that, was the right for any party with more than 20% of the vote to have a seat in cabinet. And what I was suggesting was that when you initially sold the package to the white electorate of releasing Mandela, that what you were hoping to achieve was something less than majority rule in the sense that there would be a permanent entrenched right of white political parties to have a, a position in the cabinet and some, therefore, say, beyond the normal Westminster model. I, I don't agree with that argument because... The concept of power sharing, representation in cabinet, is only one element and was at all times only one element of power sharing. Devolution of power to provinces is another form of power sharing. How parliament is constituted and how it operates with committees, it's another form of power sharing. So I did deliver on power sharing, but on this one important aspect, I'm not saying it's not important, of what we envisaged, we failed to deliver. Another thing you said in your introduction to Mr Mandela's speech that was published in The Guardian uh, was that while whites remain economically privileged, they have virtually no say in the policies by which they're governed. These policies increasingly involve affirmative action, wealth redistribution. Many Afrikaners believe they're subject to new forms of racial domination, and 20% of the white population has emigrated. Looking back at your position in 1990, do you regard that as a failure of your policy? I regard it as a failure, to a certain extent, of the present government to uphold all aspects of the agreements which we reached. Let me take affirmative action. I and my party said, yes, we wrote into the Constitution there shall be a form of affirmative action. We accepted in the Constitution that there is a concept like fair discrimination in contrast to unfair discrimination. But in the same Constitution, we said there shall not be discrimination on the basis of race and color. Now, the Constitution requires that where there are seemingly conflicting provisions in the Constitution, it must be interpreted in such a way not as to render one of those as less important than the other. There should be a balance maintained between what is seemingly in conflict. If affirmative action is applied in a way which becomes really institutionalized racial discrimination, it's wrong, it's unfair, it's unconstitutional. But in practice, it has been implemented in some departments, not in all, in a way where really 
it has undermined the concept there shall not be discrimination. It has become, and in practice and in reality, a form of institutionalized uh, racial discrimination. Really, what you just described, would you accept as a not unfair description of apartheid during all the years when you were a minister implementing apartheid? Yes, I would agree with that. And are you concerned about uh, the disaffection of the white population now, or do you think I'm that it's not a big problem? I'm, I'm, no, I'm deeply concerned. I th uh, it's even admitted now by the government that we have a skill shortage. And of the 800,000, almost a million whites who have left, and it's not only whites who are leaving, by the way, are, most of them are highly skilled, have the skills which we now have a shortage of. And the government is now even reaching out to, to South Africans in diaspora and say, please come back. And is beginning to realize that in specifically the professions where we have a big skill shortage, they should revise their whole approach towards affirmative action to such an extent that uh, a very important minister in the cabinet recently, I think here in London, said affirmative action is dead. He was lambasted by some elements in his party for saying that, but uh, reality is bringing about a rethink on this, and I welcome that rethink. Can I ask you about questions of law and order uh, and uh, the position during the 1980s and then 1994 when you were president? Um, recently, very recently, uh, Adrian Vlock, who was the Minister for Law and Order under, uh, first of all, President Botha, and then you kept him on for the first year when you were president, uh, he has been uh, convicted on his own con confession uh, of attempting to murder uh, Frank Chicane, who was the General Secretary of the South African Council of Churches, by lacing his underwear with nerve poison in 19. Uh, 88, I think, uh, and he was sentenced to 10 years suspended sentence, along with Mr. Van der Merwe, who was the police commissioner. What's your reaction to that? He was a man who you served with as a fellow cabinet minister under Botha, and he, you then appointed him, retained him as law and order minister uh, in 1990, uh, and then made him minister of prisons. What's your reaction to that? He never told me that. He never told me what he admitted in court. And General Van Amava never told me what they admitted in court now with regard to this specific case. They never admitted to me being involved in any assassination or attempted assassination. The only thing they admitted to me, and that was six weeks before the election in, in April 1994, was that they were involved in the bombing of Kotsu House where nobody was killed. So I did not have any information of them being involved in gross violations of human rights or any admissions from them. Fact is that on the Kotsu House incident, they didn't only report it to me, they also reported it to then President-to-be Mandela. And President Mandela, knowing that General Van Amerwe was involved in the Kotsu House bombing, nonetheless said, I would like you to stay on as chief of police. This is a fact. It was the only finding which the Truth Commission tried to make against me. 
and by court order they had to black it out. Well, can because we... it was an unfounded finding. Well, can we just look at what they did find? Because you uh, took out an injunction to stop the Truth and Reconciliation Commission from publishing their findings, but there was then uh, an agreed finding, uh, which was that when you originally testified to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, you said that uh, no member of the state security council on which you served or the cabinet in which you served under Mr Botha, uh, to your knowledge, authorised either murders or assassinations or gross human rights violations. It then emerged that, um, in fact, as you've just indicated, both Mr Flock, the Minister of Law and Order, and Mr Van der Voe, the Commissioner for Police, had told you, when you were still State President, that they had indeed authorised the bombing of the South African Council of Churches office in Johannesburg. And in fact, the finding that they made, which uh, was agreed to, was that your statement that none of your colleagues in the Cabinet or the State Security Council had authorised uh, human rights, gross violations of human rights, was indefensible, uh, and that you failed to make a full disclosure to the TRC of the involvement of senior members of the government in the Kotsu House yeah. bombing. It was agreed to, not on the basis that I agree with everything in it, but that that would be the right of the Truth Commission to find, well, to make such a finding. I'm a lawyer like you. And surely the Commission had the right to make a finding and to give an opinion about it. That's their opinion. What they found in the one which was blocked out, they wanted to make me an accessory after the fact. Well, leave aside the legal terminology. No, it's important. Well, but leave it aside just for a moment. Looking at it politically and morally, the fact is there you are, state president, you are informed by uh, a serving cabinet minister, the minister of prisons, that on the instruct, as it subsequently turned out, on the instructions of your predecessor, P.W. Botha, who was president, he had authorised the police commissioner to blow up the offices of the General Council of Churches. And Mr. Vlock gave evidence that uh, it was a miracle that nobody was killed. Now, it, it, you would accept, wouldn't you, that that is, that was objectively a gross violation of human rights. Can I just remind you, I was told this, I think, in March 1994. The election was on the 27th of April 1994. I was told by them at the same stage that they are also informing President Mandela of this. It wasn't as if I could then kick Mr. Flock out of cabinet or fire four weeks before the election the police chief if they go to my successor already clear in my mind who will be my successor, the president of the ANC. We already then had not just simple cabinet government, we already then had a, a council, I've got its specific title now, on which the ANC sat, on which we sat, where all important decisions had to be referred to. If they told me that six months or a year, while I was really still in charge, while I was not on the verge of stepping down, I would have taken different actions. But the fact that they on a bi-party basis, decided to make this disclosure, influenced me not to take any drastic action almost at midnight. Well, you say it's almost at midnight, but, I mean, it was arguably, well, whether it was attempted murder depends on recklessness, but the fact is, for the Minister of Law and Order uh, to admit that on the that on his own authority he uh, instructed the Commissioner of Police to blow up the offices of the 
Secretary of General Council of Churches. Isn't that something that, as state president, you had a, res a responsibility to report to the prosecuting authorities? I don't think so, because there was a provision and an agreement that all perpetrators of crimes with a political motive would get amnesty. Well, have it was part of the Constitution. It was clear that for them, having told me that, they would have to apply for amnesty as they did, and as many ANC people did. It was on the table that from all sides there were people involved in crimes committed with political motives. That was why there was an agreement reached that there shall be amnesty where it is clear that it was done with a political motive. That there would not be prosecutions was the philosophy, was the spirit of the agreements reached. That puts a totally different face on the situation. Well, but did it not strike you that it was important to investigate who else in the government might have been involved, other cabinet ministers? You know, I have appointed three commissions to investigate this right at the beginning almost of my presidency because allegations were being made. And I first appointed the Harms Commission, which didn't get through to the real truth. I then appointed the Goldstone Commission, and I gave Judge Goldstone everything which he ever asked me. And finally, it was his investigations which led to the opening of some cans of worms. And I acted very firmly. I'm still today being accused of having acted wrongly when I suspended or fired or, early, or, or put on early retirement 22 generals and very senior officers. I appointed the Khan Committee to revise and instructed the cabinet to report all secret fund activities to the Khan Committee. It was composed of people who never supported the National Party to revise which ones should go continue in the interest of the country, because all countries have undercover activities. They do spying, they do this and that, and which should be cancelled. And I accepted each and every recommendation from the Khan Committee. So, to say shouldn't I have investigated, I, I went out of my way to investigate. Can I say also about amnesty? One of the most painful concessions which I made in the negotiation period was to say that assassins can get amnesty. I had a different approach. I supported the Norgard rules, which was applied successfully in Namibia, which said that, yes, there shall be amnesty, but not for cases where there was cold-blooded premeditation and murder, where there was excessive violence. Such cases would not qualify. And that was where I stood when we started negotiating the issue of amnesty. And it was the ANC which said there must be amnesty for everybody, irrespective of the violence, irrespective of who the targets were. A gentleman who threw a bomb in a bar which killed four people, the Magoo Bar in Durban, had to be released irrespective of what he did. 
This led to the release of Baron Stradom, who walked into, into a bus and cold-bloodedly shot a number of black South Africans. I didn't like that. It was the, at the ANC's insistence that we reached that point. Does that mean that if it had been left to you, you would have been in favor of uh, prosecuting the Minister of Law and Order and your predecessor, President Botha? If I, if it was left to me, the law would have said that there would not be amnesty for assassination, cold-blooded murder, and if in terms of the law of the country a person was guilty of that, that person should be prosecuted. Authorizing someone to place a bomb in uh, a, 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 an office uh, would um, fall within that category, wouldn't it? If I remember correctly when it was explained to me, it was said that great care was taken to prevent human injury and that the hour in which it was placed was when the building would be empty. That is the explanation which was given to me and on that basis I argued also in front of the Truth Commission that I did not define that as a gross violation of human rights. But, uh, but Although minister, serious, but the without minister, minimizing it, but not a gross violation of human rights such as murder and assassination. But the Minister of uh, Law and Order, Mr. Locke, who gave the order, said it was a miracle that nobody was killed. Yeah, he said that, but he didn't say it to me when he, when he came to my office and said, look, we were involved in that, we authorized. Were you shocked when you discovered that it was that he was alleging that your predecessor as state president had authorized blowing up the offices of the Council of Churches? I always, I was never part, let me start it there, I was never part of the inner circle of my predecessor and specifically not on security issues. General Milan, former Minister of Defense who was very close to him, wrote in his book that the security forces didn't really trust me. I was, I was a dove in their eyes. General van der Merwe also said that now in public statements recently when he was charged with uh, this attempted murder. In that sense, I, I, at times, and I said in my autobiography, maybe I should have done it more incisively. I asked difficult questions in the State Security Council and in Cabinet. I tried to probe, maybe I didn't probe enough, but I had the uncomfortable feeling at times that, that things were discussed from which I was excluded. So in that sense, I wasn't shocked. Well, you attended 91% uh, of the meetings of the State Security Council under President Botha, and Mr. Leon Vessels, who was a former Deputy Law and Order Minister in the 1980s, responsible for implementing the state of emergency, said to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I don't believe the political defense of I didn't know is available to me because in many respects I believe I didn't want to know. Uh, in my own way, I had my suspicions of things that had caused discomfort in official circles, uh, but um, because I didn't have the facts to substantiate my suspicions or I lacked the courage to shout from the rooftops, I have to confess I only whispered in the corridors, no one could claim not to have known that police were torturing detainees. What's your reaction to that? My reaction to that is that I, I think it's, it's a good way of putting it from Leon Vessels' side. I have the highest of respect for him. And I myself, in my way, has said the same in my autobiography when I said maybe I should have asked in retrospect more penetrating questions. Maybe I should have regarded my uh, 
membership which wasn't related to my departments, but which was related to my political leadership in the Transvaal of the State Security Council, maybe I should have been more industrious in my membership of that, but I maybe overemphasized my departments and my other duties and my political duties and didn't do enough there. So, in a way, I said the same as Leon Vessels. But I was never part of a policy which said, or which could be reasonably interpreted, to say assassination, murder, torture is allowed or is required. Uh, of course, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission found, for example, in relation to uh, the government providing Inkata with a hit squad and pr providing training and financial management of the project, that accountability for human rights violations flowing from the establishment of the hit squad lay with the 22 people from the State Security Council, which you served on. Well, I disagree with that finding in the following sense. In the following sense. Butelezi came to us and said his life is threatened and proved it to us. He gave us a list of names. In the end, it came to 400 of his senior party officials which have been murdered and assassinated in cold blood by the ANC. He said, please help me with protection. We said yes. So the decision of which I was part was that a prominent South African who could prove that his life is threatened and who could prove that actually people are being killed all around him, was entitled to protection. The government had a duty to help him. Thereafter, that protection unit, according to evidence which came to the fore, developed into a heat squad, became involved in illegal activities. That doesn't make the decision to offer protection to him and to establish a protection unit an authorization for them to become a hit squad. But part of what was authorized was an offensive as well as a defensive unit, and that was unlawful, was it not? Uh, is that not one of the findings of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission? It might be a finding, but it wasn't part of the decision to say there's a protection unit should be, should be established. Looking at the period from 1990 to 94, the period of negotiations between you and Mr. Mandela, Mr. Mandela was very critical of you, um, and in this particular respect, that he in effect accused you of deliberately exploiting Inkata violence against members of the ANC in order to undermine the ANC and weaken his and their negotiating position. I have said it to him, and I've said it publicly at that stage, that it was a most unfair accusation. I rejected it publicly and face-to-face -face with him. It led, at times, to great strain between us, which actually, at times, inhibited progress with the negotiations. It was an unfortunate attitude from his side. At one point, at a rally after the, one of the massacres, uh, he actually likened the National Party government policies to that of the Nazis. It was very uh, strong criticism. It was extremely unfair and unjustified. What was your relationship with President Mandela during this period? It was an up-and-down relationship. 
I would say that it became very strained at stages because of ongoing violence from both sides, by the way, not just from illegal elements, which, as I established later through the Goldstone Commission, but there was also Operation Vula from their side, where against President Mandela's instruction, AK-47s were brought in and were stored again after the armed struggle was suspended. So there were ongoing actions, there were ongoing killings in KwaZulu-Natal of Inkata freedom people by ANC people, for which they applied for, it's part of the records now, many of them applied for amnesty, admitting that they've been killing Inkata people. The essence of our relationship, apart from the strain caused by this, has been one of, in the end, a basic acceptance that we have to make a deal, that the buck stops with us. We had our negotiators. Of course, we couldn't be involved, especially me. I was running the country as well. Couldn't be involved in every aspect of the negotiation, but they reported back to us, and especially, of course, to the final decision-maker, the leader-in-chief, comes back the deadlocks which could not be resolved through negotiation. So we had to work together. And in the process, there was a basic, I believe, mutual sort of a trust and an acceptance of the basic integrity of the other person. Today, we are good friends. We come in each other's homes. He attended my 70th birthday last year and made a, an embarrassing, flattering speech about me. So he must have changed his mind too. There's, uh, one gets the impression, uh, an ambiguous nature to the relationship, not just with President Mandela, also Archbishop Tutu. He is very fulsome in his praise of you for the courage you had in dismantling apartheid, releasing Mandela. Uh, but he said in his, in his book on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that although he recommended you, he supported your, your uh, nomination for the Nobel Prize, if he'd known then what he knows now after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission process, he would have vehemently opposed it. Although he gave you great credit for your apology for apartheid, um, he said that uh, you, in effect, qualified it out of existence. In effect, that he didn't really accept your defence in relation to the, the abuses by the def defence forces, that um, you didn't know or you couldn't have done more about it. Well, it's his right uh, to... To, to hold that opinion. I thought that the apology I made was a very profound apology. I didn't qualify the apology, but I cannot accept responsibility for things which were done against my policy, against the very thing which I wanted to achieve. Ongoing violence militated against everything I wanted to achieve from the moment that I became leader of the National Party. I called together the top 400 police officers, and I repeated it with the top four 600 Defense Force officers, and said, henceforth, within months after I became president, henceforth, you will concentrate and only concentrate on your task to protect the lives and property of the people of this country and of all the people, and all your fingers as it has been brought into other departments and other activities of government and with political motives, 
It's the end of that. I wasn't liked for that reason. I broke down the elaborate securocrat system which my predecessor brought about and reduced the Security Council to a mere cabinet committee like there's an economic cabinet committee, etc., etc. So the qualification did not militate against the profound aspect of saying we're sorry for the injustice which apartheid has brought about. But can I say about Bishop Tutu, I admire him greatly. I think he was at times justifiably so. If you sit there day on day chairing that commission and hear the gruesome stories which they had to listen to. I mean, all of us were, sh we were shocked about everything which came out in front of the Truth Commission, about the tragedy of it, about the gruesome aspects which came to the fore. And I, he was deeply emotional about this. And I honor him for being emotional about it and not just having a sort of a cold-blooded sort of a judicial approach to it. Okay, th these are the facts, this, that, that. He is an emotional man, and quite often people say things in an emotional state and phrase it in a specific way. It's interesting that in the biography which a person who was very close to him wrote, it was said that notwithstanding all its efforts to pin something on me, the Truth Commission failed to do so. Well, I was going to put to you, in from that bi biography about the Archbishop, uh, there is a quotation of a statement from the former British ambassador to South Africa uh, that um, you've never been prepared to say as bluntly as you should have done publicly what you used to say to him at the time, namely that you were by no means properly in control of the security forces. Uh, and as he put it, you weren't in a position to fire 85 generals. And that caused all your problems. But I did fire a lot of generals. The facts militate against that analysis. But did you say to the former British ambassador that uh, you were not properly in control no, of the security forces? No, I would forces? never have said that. But what I might have said is that I have reason. That is, why would I appoint the Goldstone Commission if I didn't have suspicions that there might be elements who are actually undermining what I do. That doesn't mean I'm not in control of the forces, but it's an admission that there might be elements. If a bank manager might say there might be a few tellers who are taking some money, that doesn't mean the bank manager is in control of the bank. In your autobiography, you recount that when you got the Nobel Prize, you went out onto the balcony in Norway and there were crowds there, and uh, that there were people chanting, kill the Boer, and you recount what a, a very bittersweet moment that was for you. Are you conscious of having this dual role in South Africa of a hero onto some people, a villain to others? No. Uh, yes, in the sense that I'm a villain to a minority percentage of the whites who accuse me that I've sold them out. But if I walk down a public street, it is black people who come up and say, can I please shake your hand? Can I have your signature? Thank you for what you've done. If I stop at a petrol station to put in gasoline, the one who serves me comes and calls the others and say, come and see who's here. No, I, ex I experience so much warmth, specifically from black and colored South Africans, that I'm sometimes embarrassed by. It, specifically in relation to Zimbabwe, from your experience as state president, could South Africa, if it wanted to, uh, force regime change or policy change by applying economic sanctions or economic pressure? 
I've been defending President Mbeki in this regard uh, across the world on public platforms in the sense of saying, replying to that question by asking two questions. Do you want South Africa to send in its army, as President Bush and Prime Minister Blair has done with Saddam Hussein? And everybody shrinks back from that and says, say no. Should we close Bite Bridge and finally really strangle the economy of Zimbabwe, totally, where already half their people are outside their borders and forming a big problem for us. Will we hurt Mugabe or will we hurt the people who are already going hungry? So I'm against such drastic steps. Where I am critical, yes, the only way is pressure. But I think the pressure had too much velvet in the glove and too little iron in the fist. Are you optimistic? or pessimistic about the prospects for South Africa over the next 10 years? I'm optimistic. I think uh, we need to challenge, uh, to, to, to accept the serious challenges which we face. We need to become more effective in fighting crime. We need to become more effective in how we deal with HIV AIDS. We need to continue to improve our economic growth and to create jobs to bring down the percentage of South Africans who live on or beneath the breadline, to improve the quality of life, to win the war against poverty. We need to do all those things, but I believe we have the capacity. And while I'm critical at the pace and on specifics from time to time, there is a will in South Africa that we should take hands about these big issues and that we should move forward. And I'm convinced we have the capacity and that capacity will transform itself into success and South Africa is destined to play a pivotal role, not only in Southern Africa, but on the whole continent of Africa. Mr. de Klerk, thank you very much. Thank you very much.